Hey, it's Arlene Bynan. I'm filling in for Alex Pearson on On Point. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Laura Walton, the president of the Ontario School Board Council of Unions, to talk about what she says is a staffing strain across school workers as the COVID school year begins. Then we're going to get into Ontario's cannabis stores. There's going to be more of them. Ontario's about to start seeing double the stores approved monthly. And Germany now confirms the leader of the opposition party to Vladimir Putin was poison. Here we go. Action-packed day today. A lot of stuff is breaking with a lot of dangling of where we may go, especially with this virus. I want to start, though, and this just comes from the heart. You know, we, we follow all the news stories of this virus changing people's lives. We've got the politicizing of the virus economically and also as we you know watch the kids go back to school but sometimes a story just hits you and when I learned I know there's a big story I think it's leading still in the Toronto store that the Kit Kat the Kit Kat club restaurant on King is not going to make it and for me I just I, I mean I saw it and I just stopped dead and it's not that I went there much anymore, but I always knew it was there. You know what I mean? You have your places, you have your vision of Toronto. And it makes me very, very sad. And I think it should make a lot of people sad. It's also very symbolic of small business people and how no matter how successful and how much work they put into it, this virus has just knocked them to their knees. And they don't have, you know, they can't appeal anymore, really, for any more government subsidies, it's gone. And I it, I actually, actually got tears in my eyes. I, I used to really like the Kit Kat. I remember when I went there, it was one of those restaurants years ago in Toronto. Uh, it, it, it reminded me of New York. And I know Toronto is very cosmopolitan now. It was then too. But, you know, it, I was always looking for a, new, a little bit more of New York in Toronto at that time. And, you know, here was this restaurant, it had a tree in the middle of it, it kind of looked like a diner. And, and the waiters and waiters, they, they kind of, they were nice to you, but they kind of ignored you. And, and they had that kind of New Yorky thing. And I felt the same way when the whole virus started, when Prune closed in New York, if you're a New York foodie, then you'd certainly know Prune. And if you're a foodie, then maybe you bought the book. It's kind of the same story, but different kind of a, a vibe from the restaurant. But it, it a restaurant can exemplify a, a city and how you feel about it. And we don't always go and other stores can do it. Other stores, woman in my neighborhood bought antiques and all sorts of stuff from her. And then she switched to something. It was just, uh, she's fantastic. Just a iconic store in the city. And she doesn't know if she's going to be able to make it. And so I, I just want a, a shout out to all the small businesses and we feel for you. And I'm sorry about the Kit Kat. It really, it really did Toronto proud. Really, really, really did. Also, we have, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the virus. We have some breaking news in the United States. The White House has told, or the CDC, which is now controlled by the White House, has told various parts of the country and health officials start preparing for a vaccine, perhaps in October. So the news is kind of blowing up all over the place. There was a lot of speculation whether or not the president was going to try to come up with a vaccine as an October surprise, which is something that we watch for, especially in in American elections, something that's going to change the dial already. 
uh, some reports are calling it a fake vaccine. (laughs) It couldn't possibly be real. So today we're going to talk about the risks of that, but that is some breaking news. The battle continues over school openings in Toronto. We're going to cover it here tonight and look at still, you know, the, the concern over the safety of it. It's so unusual because when we're talking about school boards and tension and negotiations and things with, with governments, it it's always political. It really is. And parents and kids are always in the crosshairs on this. But this is even a whole other ball of wax because we've got health tied into it. And you can't take it out of it. You just can't. Tonight, we're going to talk about custodians who are apparently concerned they can't get everything done. And they want even more. And I, I do want to say, too, as we were, as I'm looking at how schools open. This morning I was reading the New York Times and I was going through the plan in New York City and they really have have it quite different in many ways. I mean, there's a lot of distance, um, mass, and also there was something that just struck me and it didn't strike the person who wrote the article. It said that all the school rooms would have open windows and the windows would stay open even in inclement weather. The windows would stay open in the rain and the windows would stay open in the cold. So there we go. That whole thing that we've been talking about. And that's and that's what is happening. I also spent, you know, last night I was talking. They were talking about weather distancing. Uh, we know uh, some of the school boards are worried, saying that they want distancing. And there was a criticism with one of our guests last night that perhaps the government was dwelling on mass. And I was asking myself, you know, playing a little game with myself today, what would you rather have, social distancing or a mask? I would rather have both because that's really doing it properly. But airlines are asking us to do that, just put on a mask, and they're not social distancing. It's funny how how we examine this. We'll start to see who broke through the cracks and how our biases and what we think about business maybe had a lot to do with it. Yeah. So tonight we'll take a look at what custodians are worried about and how that could impact. We're also going to look at how it's going to shake down if somebody tested positive or somebody thinks they have it. Do they have to get a test? What happens if their parents, do they have to have a test? Do they have to self-isolate when they, they come back? There's some curious parts of it. And we're going to go through it all and break it all down. I also want to talk about, there's something that really struck me today. After all the talk, and and I wanted to, to do this this week about the governor general. Can we get rid of a governor general? Is it time to rethink? You're seeing all those op-eds trying to rethink uh, having a governor general. But today, <laughs> Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the governor general, uh, Payette, is really doing a great job. Now, let's just put this into context. There's an investigation into workplace harassment. You know, we know all the the breaking news about flying around, and I mean, you don't get op-eds about, shall we rethink our governor general, but Justin Trudeau is having none of it. Here's what he said today. We have uh, an excellent governor general right now, and I think on top of the COVID crisis, nobody's looking at uh, uh, any constitutional crises. Um, you know, there are, uh, uh, we have uh, put in place a, a process to review some of the working conditions uh, at Rideau Hall, uh, but uh, that's not something that we're uh, contemplating right now going further than that. So there's going to be an investigation. So what happened? Would there be no consequences from that investigation? Hmm. Very, very. I mean, you know, branding that you're listening to people. I, I think, I think the prime minister may have made a boo boo there. 
or does he just not want any attention to go to a failure? We know what governments are like. They don't like to say they'll hang on their fingernails and cheer on somebody. Sometimes, too, they cheer on people they get rid of. But here we have a prime minister. Jody was difficult. She had to go. But the governor general is not just okay and they're going to deal with it. She's doing a great job. We're continuing to talk, as everyone is, about what it's going to look like when the kids get back to school. And it is complicated. It has looked like a landmine as politicians and school boards and medical authorities start to figure out what were the priorities. And there are political aspects to it. And there are, of course, scientific and health aspects to it as well. And one of the segments of those who are going back to work who are worried about it are the custodians, you can imagine. I mean, we're talking about keeping things clean, a different level of scrutiny. And some of them say they are not going to be able to keep up. Joining us is Laura Walton, president of the Ontario School Board Council of Unions. Laura, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Arlene. All right, we knew this was coming. We knew there were going to be plans. What is it about the way this is rolling out that has the custodians nervous? Uh, I think, you know, to really tell the story, you have to go back a few years. And we've been sounding the alarm on just the reduced cleaning uh, that was happening as a result of underfunding by the government and school boards uh, choosing how to spend that money. Um, So even uh, in a recent article, you know, they in 2019, we were saying we had schools that were cleaning every other day. Uh, rather than cleaning every day because they did not have enough staff to clean every day. So really, it comes down to the fact that we need a provincial cleaning standard. And because of that absence, uh, we have men and women out there that are being faced with just an extraordinary task. They are. The pressure is on. They're on, you know, restaurants and businesses and just about everybody. It's it's a total different level. There also was an announcement by the province that they were hiring extra custodians. How is that rolling out? Is there enough? <laughs> so, you know, we welcomed that announcement. Uh, it was long overdue. But when you started to do the math, we realized that it was only two hours per day per school in the province of Ontario. Uh, so what that's looking like is essentially somebody who's able to come in and just refill the sanitizer dispensers. No extra time for high-touch surface cleaning. No extra time to help clean in the bathrooms. Just really kind of a, a lick and a polish and hope that it goes well. Now, what are the those who are employed saying? Are they nervous about their health or are they concerned about having extra work to do that they're not getting paid for? And so, and I want to say, like, it's not about doing extra work that they're not getting paid for. These are men and women who take great pride in how they maintain the quality of our schools. And what their real concern is, is that they know that they are tasked with the safety of our children, really, uh, the health and safety of our children and the health and safety of their colleagues. And what their fear is, is that they don't have enough of them to be able to do the work properly. Um, and be able to give it the thorough cleaning that needs to happen in order to keep everyone safe. All right. What are you recommending? I mean, how many they hired? What was it? 900 custodians. How many do you think they need? We recommended one per school across the province as a bare minimum. So that would be 4,800 custodians. 
And the real reason that we recommended that is that we had stories pouring in from across the province of schools that have one person cleaning an entire high school. That's 20,000 square feet. That is an impossible task to be done. And we're also calling for a provincial standard so that regardless if your child is attending school in Ottawa or attending school in Toronto or in Windsor or in Thunder Bay, that you know that they will be receiving the same level of cleanliness regardless of where we go. If you can do that for hotels, it's definitely something we can do for schools. All right. You know, is there a way to prioritize? I've been looking at some of the reporting and some of the custodians saying they're having to cut certain things out. And definitely they are having to cut certain things out because they're saying we can't do it all. So prioritize our work. And definitely our first mission will be those high touch surfaces, places where the children will be touching or staff will be touching on a regular place. Uh, Also a priority will always be the bathrooms. But I think we also need to be cautious because it's easy to say, oh, well, this is working well in September when we're sitting with, you know, 28 degree weather today. Please keep in mind that when the snow comes, that's also the responsibility of the custodians. And so safety now turns to making sure that there's safe entrance to the school, and that will take time away from all of the other things as well. What about custodians feeling about their own health? You know, a lot of teachers are, are worrying about their exposure to the virus. What about custodians? You know, we represent an amazing group of men and women uh, who really have seen this as, you know, taking the challenge on. Uh, You know, they're ensuring that they're wearing the proper PPE. Are they afraid? Absolutely, they are afraid. You know, I think anyone who is moving into this, this is all new. Uh, But we do know that we have folks across the province uh, who are ensuring the most safe places. And for custodians, they are one of those frontline workers that are going to be able to ensure a safe space. Um, by the the level of cleaning that they're doing, and that's going to speak volumes in outbreak product, you know, outbreak prevention. What about the the pressure? It's got to be a lot of pressure Huge. on this for everybody, and you know, yeah. the parents and everything. Anybody who works in there has got to. Yeah, no, no, huge pressure, and I think that's something that you know we do need to recognize is that um, if heaven forbid there is an outbreak, uh, we need to be clear that it's not going to be because. Our folks did not do their job to the fullest of their extent because they're going above and beyond. But an outbreak will happen because this ministry is failing to fund it properly. Uh, You know, I made the comment the other day saying when there is an outbreak of a disease in a hospital, we don't hire more surgeons. We make sure that we get the cleaning staff in. And it's one area that I really am concerned that this province has completely overlooked and has said, oh, well, you've got a couple of hours per day per school. That should be sufficient. And we're saying it is nowhere close to being sufficient. Well, we know there are going to be outbreaks and you can do everything perfectly. And this virus is not over. So we do know that. But I want to ask you something. I mean, we're talking about this and it has become political. And there are those who listen to some of the concerns that are coming from the schools and the school boards and the teachers. And they wonder, is is this kind of going back in time into bargaining? As you said, I mean, you've brought it to their attention before. How do you deflect those criticisms? So how I would deflect those criticisms is I would say that um, this pandemic has had a very uncanny way of revealing the dirty little secrets that happen in our education system and in all of our public services. 
And what has happened is we now have decades of austerity measures and cutbacks and cutting corners that are now coming to light and kind of coming to roost in the fact that we're not able to provide the level of service that we should be able to provide. Uh, so, you know, this isn't a bargaining issue. Uh, this is a matter of what is the public safety. And the public safety is we need to be able to provide clean schools. We need to be able to provide people to do that work. And, you know, to me, that just, you know, it, it, it just makes common sense. Uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why no one can put their hands on uh, a Lysol wipe anywhere in this province right now. People are really taking cleaning to heart. Uh, this isn't a bargaining issue. This is a health and safety and a human issue. Laura Walton, thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care. And Laura Walton, president of the Ontario School Board Council of Unions. Cannabis is still on our news. Remember that? Remember when we were talking about viruses? We were talking about what the heck is legalizing marijuana going to do to our cultural landscape and the business landscape in our country? And we've seen a lot of business moves. In some ways, it's been a disappointment. And there are many ways that it can grow. Well, it's back in the news today as Ontario has announced the cannabis regulator in our province says they're going to double double monthly store approvals. What does this mean about the business of pot and how will it affect those who are already in business? Joining us is Professor Andrew Hathaway from the Department of Sociology and Anthropology, University of Guelph. Professor, thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Now, when we hear that they're doubling stores, what does that tell you? What does that tell you about, first of all, the business as I said, of pot in our province? Well, it's an indication that Ontario is ready to move forward, um, far behind many other provinces, mm-hmm. as it turns out, in terms of the rollout of uh, the, uh, the the new legal regime. So uh, I, I guess it's a, a positive sign of things moving forward in terms of providing the uh, higher levels of access that are going to be required in order to uh, successfully displace some of that uh, illicit market cannabis. Um, So, yeah, Ontario is behind uh, quite significantly. Um, Just to kind of recap, it it was available online only um, for the first six months, and then the stores have kind of slowly started opening up since uh, April of last year. Um, and, and we've got pretty solid indications that that, uh, that, that failure to, to roll out more quickly has uh, somewhat hindered Ontario in terms of uh, the goal of displacing the illicit cannabis market, as compared to Alberta, for example, which right off the get-go had uh, a couple hundred stores ready to go, 80 uh, or so in Calgary alone as of last summer. Um, so uh, that has been... Um, Uh, more successful in terms of displacement. Ontario is a little bit behind the curve. Okay, you know, what were the concerns? We're all trying to go back in a time machine here when this was such a huge story, the legalization of marijuana. What were the concerns? You know, it was online, there was all sorts of, it's very similar, I guess, of we're watching people move forward in the pandemic. Baby steps, let's see how it goes, because the impact was on society, on culture. But as you have just mentioned, the big aim and the big sell that we heard from this is that it would displace the black market. And we're hearing certainly in Ontario that just hasn't happened. Why do you think they're choosing now to move forward and put more stores out? 
Well, I mean, as you recall, there was a change of government, and the Ford government was uh, determined to do things its own way. Um, and it's a bit ironic because Captain Capitalism, uh, <laughs> Doug Ford, is uh, was a little bit slower than than the rest of Canada in that regard. Wanted to put his own stamp on it per se. Um, so that I think accounts for some of the foot dragging in the case of Ontario. Um, other provinces were far more apt to want to embrace the transition, particularly when they saw it as a potential uh, boon to local business and sagging economies and things like that. So yeah, Ontario's uh, catching up for sure. And I mean, some of the concerns with online only was uh, many of the folks who. Um, want to have a, a reliable supply, aren't comfortable putting their credit card online, for example, concerns about how that might affect their ability mm-hmm. to cross the border and things like that. So having more um, brick-and-mortar outlets available, I think, uh, does go some way towards addressing the concerns of, of, of that segment of the market um, that's going to be uh, more likely to be purchasing legal as opposed to illegal. Uh, I think it's worth uh, noting that um, we've got some pretty good data now. Obviously, we're a few months since uh, legalization and opportunities to see, uh, at least through national surveys, what proportion of the cannabis-using population is buying from what source. And uh, we we know that about the top 10% of users account for about two-thirds of the volume of of cannabis being used. Mm Um, so if, if we want to really address um, the, the illicit market, we need to really change the habits of that top 10%. And, of course, those are with the most well-established channels of supply through um, their own illicit sources, which are very comfortable, thank you very much, very high quality, um, you know, better economies of scale. They're not limited in terms of how much you can buy and, and hence uh, end up paying less. So, I mean, the main variables are price and access and quality. Um, you know, we, we, we need to talk about all those different variables to really kind of get at the, the root of uh, what's likely to be a successful strategy. So it's not so easy, though, is it? I mean, it, you know, to get into that black market, they're adaptable. They're watching this. They're agile. They're seeing where the holes are. Is there a... Is there a path forward where you think that they can be possibly eliminated? And if they're not eliminated, they can certainly dwindle. Uh, yeah, dwindle, I think, is, is probably <laughs> the more... Uh the more promising outcome. Um, I, I, I have a hard time imagining it's going to be completely eradicated, as you suggest, very adaptable, um, you know, willing to, uh, to to make the kind of uh, changes that are necessary. For example, Ontario dealt, dealt a big uh, blow to legal cannabis in, in favor of illicit distributors when it, uh, when it banned um, delivery from... Mm-hmm. Uh, from legal outlets, for example, during the pandemic. Uh, the only source of supply where you could still, still get delivery was through the Ontario Cannabis Store. And a- anybody who wasn't uh, su- you know, selling through that particular website, suddenly uh, that source of distribution is cut off. So guess what? It's a big, a big prize for the, for the illicit distributors who are certainly still willing to deliver. And in fact, uh, business you know, uh, picked up accordingly. So uh, certainly there's, there's access and there's price and there's quality. I mean, it's the difference between uh, when you talk about the, bi- the, 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 the big cannabis, the corporate cannabis, it's like uh, fine dining versus mm-hmm. 
um, you know, getting it at the uh, the school cafeteria, right? It's when you're producing that much, there's there's uh, probably less uh, attention to quality. One of the concerns with corporate cannabis when it first came out was uh, they they weren't getting the 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 humidity controls just right. So there there was mold in the first couple of batches. So then they overdid the drying, and then you've got all this dry, crumbly crap being sold at the stores, which you know is is an indication of quality. And uh, if if the if the legal market isn't going to be able to match the illicit market for quality, then it's gonna it's gonna uh, necessarily fall behind. All right, I want to ask you finally, what surprised you about this in the rollout at this point when we were talking about it? You know, there was uh, all sorts of concerns and valid concerns about what kind of effect it would have on culture. And then there was all sorts of expectations about what a fantastic business opportunity it would be. For some, that hasn't worked out, even across the country where things are uh, working out a little bit better in regards to the illicit market. But from your point of view, as you look at this in context, what surprises you the way things have ended up so far? Um, I mean, surprises in terms of, uh, certainly in terms of the assumption that, um, you know, uh, that your regular pot smoker is going to be simply willing to switch and buy the mm-hmm. illicit source of supply. I think that was uh, probably um, a short-sighted assumption. And I think uh, a lot of what the government is banking on in order to draw the consumer is uh, the guarantees that this is much safer. This is uh, something that you know meets all the public health checkboxes. And, and I think that might be something that is attractive to somebody who you know is is a novice and perhaps interested in trying mm-hmm. it for the first time. Uh, you know, let's get some brownies for girls' night or something like that, and just mm-hmm. and just give it a try, right? In which case, you know, we're willing to. Spend the higher price that you need to pay in order to get it at a, a legitimate uh, retail outlet. But for those, you know, that top ten percent, they're not going to buy those claims, right? They already have a safe, reliable supply, and they're not going to buy into the claim that, you know, it's the organized crime that uh, perpetuates the black market cannabis and it's dangerous stuff and it's cut with fentanyl and all that kind of, uh, you know, prohibitionist propaganda that was used to try to kind of. Uh, kind of promote the transition to the legal market. So we really have two major groups of consumers, and I think it's certainly more readily available to any number of people who are willing to give it a try. Um, there's a reduced stigma as a result. But that, uh, again, it's that top 10% group. If you really want to make you know significant gains in terms of displacing of the, of the illicit market, um, th- th- that's going to require significant drops in price and uh, increasing access, as Ontario is doing with the stores, and uh, and other other measures that um, that don't necessarily um, set out to, uh, to 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 paint the picture with smoke and mirrors per se. It isn't. It's a business. At the end of the day, right now, it is business, and people want quality and price and availability. Professor Andrew Hathaway, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. All right. You too. Professor Hathaway is from the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph. It's crazy, isn't it? You still think about it as adjusting that business, and now that's what it is. We're kind of getting used to this, aren't we? We hear of somebody getting poisoned. They have connections to Vladimir Putin, some kind of opposition. Then Russia denies that they're poisoned. Sometimes they don't make it. 
and sometimes they live. And we find out a little bit more where here it is happening again. We have the opposition critic to Vladimir Putin, uh, Nalvani, who made international headlines just about a week ago, poisoned his family and those close to him say. He went to a hospital in Russia and they said it wasn't so. And finally, after pressure, Nalvani makes it to Germany. And now Germany has confirmed that is the cause of his illness. Christian Luprecht is joining us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian Luprecht, how are you? Good evening. All right, we have. I mean, we're getting used to this. There is a template, and somebody close or a critic of Putin falls ill, and then they say, no, he isn't poisoned, and then we find some kind of evidence. Now we have Germany confirming, saying not only was he poisoned, he was poisoned with the same kind of stuff that has been connected with these other cases. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think the Russians want to send a message. Look, if they want to take someone out, uh, as we know, you're just going to show up dead. They'll just send a hit squad and you'll be done or they'll just beat you to death or just lock you up in jail and you'll just never emerge again. So these are stories that I think are intended to be set up as drama and make international headlines. If you think about the Skripals in the UK, if you think of the previous polonium uh, case in the UK, uh, and I think it's a, it's an effort by the Russians to send a message to uh, the opposition and to critics uh, that they will make people suffer. They can get people at any time, at any place, um, uh, perhaps uh, where people might feel perfectly safe. Um, and it's a way of trying to curtail uh, criticism of the regime at a rather critical time. I mean, uh, Putin's approval ratings have never been lower since he came to power. Uh, Russians have been suffering um, not just as the pandemic, but of course, even previously economically as a result of sanctions. And so um, the living standards in Russia have dropped substantially back to roughly where uh, they were shortly after Putin came to power. And so for many Russians, it looks like uh, the gains that they thought they had made are now lost. And of course, you have um, the opposition, opposition militating in Belarus, and there's nothing that Russian authoritarianism is more afraid of than possibly uh, another um, uh, regime change on its own doorstep. And so this is Russia doubling down on its internal critics, and the obvious person to go after is the most prominent of those internal critics who is still alive, knowing that likely the international community would ask for him uh, to be moved uh, to a hospital somewhere else. And so uh, Russia being able to distance itself and saying, hey, you know, there's nothing here, um, and yet then turning this into an international story. So I think this is quite intentionally, deliberately orchestrated for precisely the sort of conversation that we're having, but directed primarily uh, at a audience of potential domestic critics. Is it going to work? Because as you say, I mean, there are some forces that are challenging Vladimir Putin. You know, is this, uh, he's done it several times. It must be something that has worked out for him in the past. 
Yeah, it also, I think, sets a precedent for mm-hmm. um, leaders such as uh, Lukashenko next door or so to, uh, to be harsh on the critics mm-hmm. and to double down on, uh, on, on those critics and to leave no stone unturned and leave no means and mechanism uh, spared in order to shut people up and take them out of circulation. Um, and look, I think the trouble that we've gotten ourselves into internationally is with the diffusion of international norms and international law, um, dictators such as Putin or Lukashenko know uh, that uh, if they don't stay in power forever, they will either likely face a domestic court or an international court, or they will end up like Saddam Hussein or Uh, Muammar Gaddafi. And so they've learned a lesson that they need to hold on to power. And so I think it's less a question of whether this is going to work or not. For them, there is no other option. They have to make it work because they understand what their destiny looks like uh, if it doesn't work. Now, what about, you know, one of the forces that could interfere with whether this worked or not used to be international reaction. We watch very carefully. One of the things that we haven't seen in this particular case is the president of the United States weighing in. Yeah, of course, we know that he himself is preoccupied domestically, but I think it uh, is also an indication and perhaps also a reason why the Russians are emboldened, mm-hmm. um, both on the home front and in terms of interference abroad, uh, that the current uh, political executive in the U.S. is entirely preoccupied with uh, China uh, and with containing the rise of China. And so in that sense, it seems that uh, for better or for worse, um, <clears throat> the current executive in the U.S. believes that uh, the Russian challenge is manageable uh, and can be contained. But more importantly, um, that Russia does not pose an existential challenge, immediate existential challenge uh, to U.S. interests or to U.S. power in the same way that China does. And so uh, given that in every political capital, uh, there is limited bandwidth in terms of where people can direct their attention um, and uh, uh, compounding that with a presidential election campaign, um, I think uh, this is partially the reason why the Russians feel that uh, uh, they can do this and, and why we're likely going to see more of this type of action, this sort of subtle messaging um, by the Russian regime in an effort to effectively uh, declare um, uh, warfare on um, anyone internally who whose comments might pose a risk, an existential risk to the regime. And I think it's interesting that um, Navalny, of course, ends up being a target because uh, ostensibly Russia could lock up or take out all sort of opposition. But what Russia really does target, and so this is a longstanding continuity under the Putin regime, is it targets people who it believes pose a direct Mm -hmm. and an immediate threat to the political authority um, and to the regime um, of, uh, of Vladimir Putin. So there is sort of some degree of freedom of expression as long as you don't get involved in political expression that directly might affect the stability or the permanency of the regime. All right. And as we add very, very quickly, this is also an election campaign. There's reporting that Russia is interfering on behalf of uh, Donald Trump. I know there is that conversation going on in the debate, China versus Russia, but it gets complicated, Christian. 
Yeah, uh, I think this it's it's part of sort of the struggle that uh, superpowers engage in. But I think the worrying trend here is, of course, the increasing use of what effectively are weapons of mass destruction uh, by regimes, both within their own borders uh, against critics and deployed mm-hmm. outside of their borders. I mean, Russia, uh, North Korea has uh, uh, has engaged in such activity, um, and um, uh, the. China has been more subdued on that particular front, but of course we know that China has um, uh, one of the things that came to light internationally is that China, of course, has a large um, uh, weaponizable microbiology laboratory uh, in Wuhan itself. So China certainly has the capabilities to do this. And so I think the real concern for the international community is the legitimation of the use of weapons of mass destruction uh, that can easily get out of hand because, of course, these are weapons that can have um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, terrible consequences if uh, used in, uh, if, if, if not used exactly in the ways, um, in, in specifically targeted ways. And I think this is certainly causing NATO and allies uh, a loss of sleep. Christian Luprecht, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Thank you, Condé, for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's the podcast for today. You can hear On Point live on the radio Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 p.m. I'm Erlene Bynum, filling in for Alex Pearson.